heaven, we've sung how great you are. We've declared your greatness and your goodness in ways very personal and and ways very big scale because you're a God who works on a universal worldwide scale and you are a God who works into the details of our lives. You care about us. You desire us to be wholly yours. You've redeemed us for that purpose. You've saved us for that purpose. And sin and death are no longer a barrier for us. But we are desperately needy for your grace and your truth, your word, and your help to cause us to grow in deeper knowledge of you and and greater devotion to you. Father, part of the privilege we have as a community is serving one another and contributing to your work not only financially, but including financially. So thank you, Father, for the generosity of your people. May we joyfully give to you, Father, as part of your church family for for the sake of your work in growing us to be like Christ and spreading the gospel in our community and among the nations. So receive these gifts and multiply them for, for your name's sake. In Christ we pray. Amen. Sixteenth-century reformer Martin Luther said the following words about Paul's letter to the Romans. This epistle, this letter, is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, wouldn't that be something, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So Romans, I think, is the greatest book ever written, the greatest letter in the New Testament, and the greatest book in the Bible. And you can differ with that, and that's okay. I could be wrong. It could be Revelation. It could be Isaiah. But we're going to say for now it's Romans. So we're going to spend some time in that over the next several weeks. And uh, so today we're going to dive right into uh, Paul's introduction. It's the, the longest introduction of any of his letters in the New Testament, and it's the longest letter of any of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Uh, basically what Romans is about, it's about a big, glorious God with a powerful, transforming gospel. 
So that's not bad. In his um, introduction, he, he gives the reason for writing to the Roman churches. He's never been to the Roman churches, assuming that, they're, that the Roman church is house churches throughout the, the, the city of Rome. And he's, so he's not, he didn't plant them, and he's writing to explain his gospel because um, part of what's going on in the Roman church is there's a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Imagine that. So he's writing to call them to embrace a, a common gospel. As well, in chapter 15, Paul says, I'm, I'm coming your way, and I'm, I'm going to Spain, and I'm hoping to be helped on my way to Spain by you because he's, he's expanding his mission to Spain. He feels he's finished his mission work in the Middle East, and he's taking it west. So he's, this is basically a missionary support letter in part. He says, on the way, I'm going to take a, a collection up to the Jerusalem church, and then I'm going to visit you. So Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth during his third missionary journey around 57 AD. And let's look at the first seven verses in Romans to get an idea of what Romans is all about. This is chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord grant a spirit to help us to receive his word and to hear it and trust it. So in verse 1, Paul describes himself as under three um, labels. He starts out by saying, I'm a servant, which is really the greatest thing you can be, a servant of the living God. Jesus said, who, the one who would be great among you must be the servant of all. And uh, it, it carries an Old Testament uh, roots, Moses and the prophets and David and uh, Joshua were called the servant of the Lord. So Paul stands in that line of being having authority from God as an apostle, but he's a servant of the Lord. And he, he says, I was... Graciously called by Jesus as an apostle, an apostle is a sent one, a messenger, a missionary. And God called the apostles. Uh, Paul was a little bit different in that the 11 of the apostles had seen the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-resurrection days. And Paul had maybe seen him, but had not been an apostle at that time. He had basically been an opponent of Jesus. And God called him as one born lately to become an apostle, a foundation teacher for the church, laying out the truth for the church. And he said, I had an assignment as an apostle. He said, I was set apart. I was appointed for the gospel of God, God's good, glad, joyful news, the gospel, which the gospel is the main message of of God's redemptive plan. And, and that is that God rescues people from his judgment into peace with God 
through Jesus so they can live forever with him in his new creation. The good news is God rescues people from his judgment. If you're liable to God's judgment, who can help you? The only help you can get is from God himself. And so the good news is God has provided help, deliverance, rescue from his own judgment, and brings us into peace with him through Jesus so that we can live forever with him in the new creation. Paul's life purpose was to be totally dedicated to and shaped by the gospel. As he writes in another letter, he said, I do everything I do for the sake of the gospel. And though we're not apostles, the last time I checked anyway, um, but we're, we're believers in Christ, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles, we live through the gospel, so the gospel ought to infiltrate and impact every area of our lives as well. So that's a good question as we enter into the new year. Does the gospel interfere? Does it integrate itself into all of my life, all my plans, all my designs, what I live for? In verse 2, Paul says this gospel, God's gospel, it's, it's not something that man dreamed up. It's not a patch sewn on worn-out Old Testament clothes. It is not a fix for an unforeseen security breach in God's program. God promised the gospel long ago through his prophets in the Old Testament Holy Scriptures. In fact, the content of the gospel was given in seed form in Galatians 3.8, where, where uh, the Apostle Paul also wrote, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so God preached the gospel to Abraham and to the prophets already, yet it just remained yet to be fulfilled. And the gospel in verse 3 is about God's Son. The gospel is about Jesus. It's not about our behavior. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's concerning God's Son. This gospel that was promised beforehand is fulfilled in God's Son says he came into this world as a descendant of David. It was crucial that he did because that was the promise to uh, David that I'm going to raise up one of your sons, one of your offspring, to be an eternal, forever king. And so that's different than any king that ever came from David. So there's the, the prophecy was, was re remaining to be fulfilled. God would establish one of David's descendants as king forever. And that was absolutely necessary because that's what God said. He's going to descend from David, but he's going to be a forever ruler. But it wasn't just that he was a descendant of David that made him the Messiah. Because being in the flesh, so he says the son was descended from David according to the flesh, means being human in weakness and mortal, subject to death. And, and if you're subject to death, you're no better than any of the other of David's descendants. So something else had to happen to Jesus to be the Messiah, to qualify as the Messiah. We see that in verse 4, that this Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection. So what that evidently says is that uh, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus was proven or shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead. This is true. But actually, the original word for that's translated um, that was shown to be or declared to be 
really is better translated, he was appointed or designated son of God. So if, if this is Paul's meaning, that he was appointed son of God, does that mean that there was a time that Jesus wasn't the son of God? Is he saying that Jesus didn't become God's son until he was raised from the dead? No, it, Jesus as God's eternal son, which he is and was, was the son of God before taking on the weakness of being human. But what Paul's contrasting the relative weakness of Christ's pre-resurrection state as a human, as he, as he took on human flesh, human identity, and with, he's contrasting that with the triumphant power exhibited in the post-resurrection lordship of Christ. Paul's not talking about a phase in which Jesus is not the Son of God and another in which he is. He's talking about what Jesus was before his resurrection and after his resurrection. As the incarnate, that is the in flesh, in human Son of God, who died and was resurrected, he has been appointed or installed as the Son of God with power. That's what he says. He, those words kind of all cling together. He was the Son of God in power, a special saving power that he didn't have before because he's the God-man. And that was accomplished through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. As the Messiah or the Anointed One, Jesus was empowered by the Spirit in everything he did, including in the resurrection. So he's raised in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he did all his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gives the Holy Spirit now as both Lord and Messiah. It's what Peter meant in, in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon. He said that by raising Jesus from the dead, God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, by raising Jesus from the dead, he has now entered his role of being both Lord and Christ as Savior and Judge of the living and the dead. He is the head of the church. He gives the Holy Spirit as human Messiah. He had to gain victory over sin, death, and devil to save sinners and, and reign as Lord. So he's talking totally about as Jesus was Son of God in eternity with God the Father, stepping into humanity, now he has to gain the victory, and which he does. So I'll just read to you, listen from Philippians chapter 2. talks about Christ became obedient to the point of death. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God exalted him. Or Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Paul says, I pray that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. So, if this is all about God's gospel, is about the exaltation and triumph of his son as the God-man. In, in this already and not yet sense, because already he has been exalted, he is at the Father's right hand, he has the saving power, and he's about saving people out of the power of sin and death and the devil. But not yet do we see him in his full glory. We, we don't see him yet. He's not come back yet. And not everything is yet subjected to him. So we're already he's the son of God with power, but not yet is he fully brought his kingdom in. 
And so we're all about being ready for his kingdom to come. Then in verse 5, Paul says, through this one who is the Son of God with power, Jesus Christ our Lord, he received grace and apostleship, or a grace-based apostleship. He was an apostle by grace, not because he was made of the right stuff. He says, I was the foremost of sinners because I persecuted the church of God, and so I didn't deserve to be an apostle. I didn't deserve to be a believer. But God, by his grace, rescued him and made him not only a, a saved person, but, but an apostle. As an apostle, Paul had a mission. In verse 2, he said it was set apart for God's gospel. But more specifically, what was Paul's task? What did, what, what did God send him to accomplish? What was on his to-do list day in and day out? Why did he receive a grace apostleship? He says it's for the obedience of faith among all nations all ethnic groups, for the sake of Christ's name. Oh, is that all? The obedience of faith among all nations. That's quite a task. What is the obedience of faith that Paul is is aiming for? The gospel to which Paul calls people is to be received by faith. It is a message of how God's Son came as a man, lived a sinless life, died in our place on the cross, and was raised in power to, so that all who believe in him could have eternal life. Faith in this message is an obedient faith. Because it understands that being saved by Christ is not one nice option among many. It's a summons from the, the God of the universe to receive him as Savior and Lord for forgiveness of sins and life through his Son. And because saving faith receives Christ as Lord exalted Lord, and new life by the Spirit, it results in a life of obedience. So Paul's mission is not just to make, get people to make decisions for Christ, not just to get a few converts, but to raise up obedient believers in Christ, those who faith obey Jesus. All obedience is rooted and grounded and flows from faith. You only obey an authority that you trust. And so if you don't trust God, you don't obey him. If you do, well, it's our privilege to obey him, even though it's a struggle. Paul's task determines the church's task. The mission of Paul must be the mission of harvest. So it's a good time of of the year to, to, to run this check. Have you been growing in the obedience of faith in Jesus? Are you trusting and valuing Christ more as your Savior as you enter 2015 than you were a year ago? Are you overcoming sin and increasing in obedience to Christ? That's a significant vital sign for our health as a church. And it's something, it's a, it's a community effort. We, we encourage one another, we, we meet together in settings like this, in small groups, in order not just to affirm one another, but to help one another grow in Christ. We search the word together. So, by God's grace, hopefully we're growing in the obedience of faith. And the obedience of faith is, as Paul will state in Romans 6, obedience from the heart. It's, it's not that we are saved by faith alone in, in the good news that is the gospel. Then we grudgingly grunt out obedience in our own strength. 
as if we were trying to earn God's grace. It's not a bait and switch. It's not, well, hey, it's easy to believe, but it's hard to live. Well, it is hard to live for Christ because we still have remaining sin. But faith in the gospel receives a new heart with a new bent toward God. Someone posted on, on Twitter, real people aren't perfect and perfect people aren't real. I get what they mean and there's truth in that, but at the same time this person has some pretty profane things posted on their Twitter. So it's kind of like, hey, I'm not perfect and I just give myself permission to, to do these things. So I, I'd like to say along with that, that real Christians grow in repentance from sin and living in obedience to God, however hard of a battle that is. So Paul's mission is to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations, every ethnic group. So every New Year's Day, Paul sits down and says, hey, how's the gospel spreading? Well, I don't know if he measured it by New Year's Day or not. But um, in Romans 15, Paul writes that from Jerusalem to current-day Albania, he had fulfilled his gospel work. And what he meant by that is he had established beachheads for the gospel, gospel churches who could do the work of leading others to the obedience of faith in their own ethnic groups and nations. And now he was moving on to Spain. So the, the apostolic gospel, the good news from the scripture that we have here, is the foundation and heart of the church. So if we believe that, then we must be a church that participates in the in the scope of the task of getting the gospel to all the nations. You say, wow, how are we going to do that? Well, we can't obviously do it all. No one church can do it all. The church for 2,000 years has been pursuing that task, sometimes more or less effectively, to raise up obedient believers in Christ in all nations. That word, again, means ethnic groups. It's not just talking about geographical nations. It's talking about people groups who share a common culture and language. How is Harvest participating in advancing the gospel in all nations. We've chosen to focus our efforts in India, not because that's the only nation on earth, but because there are more unreached people groups in India. There's at least 2,000 or more among 7,000 unreached people groups left in the, in the world. So there's a lot of work to be done there. There's still a lot of need for native Indian missionaries as well as cross-cultural missionaries from other nations. So there's plenty of work there to be done. Um, we support Indian National Inland Mission. That's the Palais family has been uh, has a strong track record of training up workers and church planners and evangelists and pastors and teachers for decades. So we support what they do. We've had AJ Palais here. Um, it also led us to to uh, connect with Roderick Gilbert, who leads a church planting movement in northern India, where there are tons of unreached people groups. And this year we're partnering with a new family, the Holds. You'll hear more about them. Some of you who are long-timers remember David Hold. He, was, he came to, to Christ here uh, as part of Harvest. And they're going there to partner with a, um, an, an Indian pastor, and they're going to be doing uh, English as a second language as a business. And they're going to be working in the slums, and they'll be involved in university outreach. And also by supporting Sarah Deal with Wycliffe, because her work enables... Bible translations to be done in Tanzania for unreached people groups there as well. So that's, we, we want to grow in that. We want to give more to that. We want to be more involved with that. But that's how we're taking our steps to help carry out that mission 
that Paul started back 2,000 years ago. Jesus started. And he says, I'm doing it for the sake of his name, of Christ's name. The ultimate driving purpose for which Paul received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the nations was for the sake of Jesus' name. Name represents God's character and being. It's God's glory or God's beauty, what makes him attractive and great and awesome and excellent and worthy of praise. There are dozens and dozens of verses that speak of praising and exalting God's name that is glorifying him for who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. May your name be seen as holy, honored as, as great. We are to pray in Jesus' name that God's name be seen, enjoyed, exalted. So why does God save us? For the sake of his name, for his glory. The Apostle James said that in, in the book of Acts. He said, God has chosen to take from among the Gentiles a people for his name. You say, well, I thought that God saved us because he loved us. That's true. In Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But then in Romans 15.9, Paul says that God saved Gentiles that they might glorify him, magnify him, praise him for his mercy, which is virtually the same thing as saying for his love. So what is right for God is not right for us. What is right for God is not right for us. So for, suppose my wife asks me to remind her why I married her. And I answer her, Honey, you know why I married you. It's because I love you and I couldn't stand to live life without you. And she melts into a pile of romantic bliss. <laughs> or another answer would get a different response. The reason I married you, honey, is because for the sake of my name and for my glory. Something would melt, but it wouldn't be a pile of romantic bliss. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not the act of a needy ego, but an act of infinite giving, because seeing and treasuring his glory is in the gospel is life-giving. It purges in sin and purifies. It builds up. It gives joy. It transforms us to be like him in glory. How does the fact that God saves us because he loves us not contradict the fact that he saves us for the sake of his name, for his glory? Because he who is perfectly holy and worthy of all glory and praise and obedience saved us in the greatest act of loving self-sacrifice ever. The death of his son to take our guilt and shame and give us life. And we find our greatest satisfaction and joy in giving glory to the most excellent being in the universe who saves us through his holy and sacrificial love. Well, we're going to celebrate that at the Lord's table here, and we have a couple more verses just to call reference to. Paul says, we're called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he says, you in Rome who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, God called us into saving faith. If, if he didn't take the initiative, I would have never believed. It's God making his word effective to me and drawing me to himself opening my spiritual ears to hear and my heart to, to believe and receive him. And then he says in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So that's what a Christian is. It's one whom God has 
set his love upon and has called to be saints. He, he didn't look upon us and say, hey, I'm really attracted to this person. They're really lovely. I think I'm going to love them. He chose to set his love upon us when we were unlovely. And he called us to be saints by uniting us in fellowship to the one who is holy. So a saint is not one who has climbed a spiritual ladder and attained a certain level of goodness and greatness. A saint is someone who is holy by God's grace. The benefit package of this holy calling is summed up by the words grace and peace. Grace is God's freely bestowed favor, and peace is the reconciled relationship with God and the new life we have in Christ. They come to us from the God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God calls us to his table. He calls us to eat the bread and drink the cup. Why does he do that? It's a table of grace and a table of peace. It's a table where God has redeemed us through his Son, where he has sent his Son the Son of God in power, who paid the price for our sins and was raised again from the dead so that we could have eternal life. He took on human flesh, so the bread represents the flesh of Christ, his humanity, that he didn't have before. Now he is eternally united with humanity in, in his resurrection state. And he set this up to say, I'm, I'm, I'm ratifying, I'm purchasing a new covenant. I'm purchasing you from out of sin's slavery and, and from sin's guilt. And I'm giving you life freely. So as we take these elements around the Lord's table, we're, we're saying, I believe that. I believe my only hope for eternal life is in the Son of God who took on human flesh and gained victory over sin, death, and devil for me. Now I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to have at four tables around the room men serving you the elements. Uh, sometimes what we have them do is pray, but... We're a little bit shorter on time, so today we're just going to have you prepare your heart and uh, take the elements. You're welcome to take them right here or take them back to your, your chairs. So let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare us for uh, taking this meal together. It is one that if, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, that you should uh, not take the elements because this is saying that you believe in Christ's death for you and his, and his life for you. Uh, if you have come to that decision today, then feel free to take the elements so let's ask God to bless our time. Father, we do ask you to bless our time around your table. You have given us grace and peace in Christ. Grace you've loaded to, into us and for us. The life of your Son, his righteousness, his holiness, his shame purifying, his guilt removing, his life-giving power. You've invested that in him as the Messiah. And he shed his precious blood on the cross to pay the penalty for, for our sins, to purchase us out from under sin's domination. And you've united us to him by faith. You've called us to yourself, Father. You, you invite us to this table. Your word says that this is not a magic ritual, nor is it an empty ritual. It is uh, a sign, a symbol of coming to confess our faith again in Christ. We pray, Father, for refreshed hearts, refreshed spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ in, in the gospel to see your beauty and your goodness, 
in the midst of the ugliness of the cross and to um, be, re- be renewed in our relationship with you. Father, we don't fall in and out of relationship with you, but we do fail a lot. And we, we need to come to Jesus again and again and again for that cleansing that he gives us freely as we recognize that we, we still sin, we still fail to practice the obedience of faith, and yet through him we're continued to be transformed more and more into his glory. So thank you, Father, for the great gift of Jesus and the gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.